Disrupted Futures. I'm Hugh Seaton. Today, I'm here with Adam Lawrence, co-founder and CEO of Boom and Bucket. Adam, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Yeah. So I'd love to talk about a few things, but let's start with what Boom and Bucket does. Pretty simple. You go to boombucket.com and you can buy a piece of heavy equipment, get it delivered to your home. I love how fast that was. Now I got to think about a good question. Talk to me about what that means. So when you talk about heavy equipment, what sorts of things do you mean? Yeah, it sounds easy, uh, a little more complicated behind the business, but what we sell is everything from skid steers, which your landscaper might use to very large bulldozers, which somebody might use to build like a, you know, a highway or a subdivision or something like that. Biggest thing we've ever sold was three quarters of a million dollars. Cheapest stuff we sell is on the order of magnitude of kind of 10,000. And who, who works with you the most? Yeah. So we operate as a broker in our business, we call it a digital dealership. And it's a digital dealership because we do the financing, insurance, shipping, logistics, everything that a dealership would do. Mm -hmm. And the people that sell through us are usually large, sophisticated fleets that like our model of retailing it and then moving it to auction as opposed to just starting at auction. So they get better price realization that way. And who buys from us, small and medium-sized contractors, you know, folks that maybe started as a kind of owner operator a few years ago have grown up in the trades, have maybe 20 to 30 employees, a dozen pieces of equipment. They care about the quality and condition reports, the guarantees behind what we sell. And they don't want the BS of having to negotiate with the salesperson. You know, they're ready to pay. They know what a fair price is and they care about our warranty, shipping, logistics, everything that goes along with it. Yeah, they got to get a job done. They don't want to sit there and haggle for half a day. That's it. Yeah, yeah. We love it when they come in and we say, what do you need it for? And they need it. Well, I got a contract. That's perfect for both sides because then we know that they're a serious buyer and they know that we have the piece of equipment. So it's easy to come to kind of a, a deal on that type of stuff. And am I hearing that you're basically, a lot of the time anyway, it's larger fleets that are turning over or renewing their fleet or whatever it is, but things are going from larger fleets to smaller buyers. You find that that's some of the pattern of what's going on? Yeah, that's exactly it. So a really big construction company usually buys new from somebody like Caterpillar. They have a nationwide account program, so they get discounts through every single dealer, no matter where they are. And then they typically hold something for just a few years, maybe through the warranty period, maybe 4,000 hours of operational usage, and then they sell it. And they sell it not because it's broken or because it doesn't work anymore, but maybe the project's done. Or maybe that after the warranty period, the machine breaks down a little bit more, just like your car might if it has 50,000 miles as opposed to 5,000 miles on it. And they sell it to somebody who cares a little bit less about that, is a little bit more price conscious, but still wants something that's pretty good. They're not looking for the rust bucket or something that's going to fall apart or something that takes them an hour to start every morning. That's a really interesting dynamic. And do you find that that's true across vehicle types and across equipment types? Are there some areas where that just happens an awful lot, whether on a backhoes or various other things? It, it's a little bit different in each part of the world. And so there's just a huge amount of variation in equipment. Some is incredibly specialized. Like two of that unit might sell in the United States each, each year. So hmm. like, I think of it like a tunnel excavator. It's an excavator designed to go underground in tunnels. Maybe the boring company would need it. There's not a lot of those in the US and we have two of them for sale right now. And there's probably maybe 10 will get transacted this year in the United States. That could go big company, big company, big company, small company, big company to specialty company. It's really just whoever needs it's going to buy it from anybody. Something like a backhoe that's considered like general gear, mm -hmm. oftentimes that starts its life at a rental company mm -hmm. and then goes to an operating contractor. And then maybe 10 years after that, it ends up on my grandfather's farm type situation. Isn't that interesting? 
how just to I'm, I'm really geeking out on on the flow of, of how things go from kind of one financial operation to another to another. Their requirements are different. Their insurance is different. Am I right? Is that some of what's driving why one kind of company needs it one way and another needs it another? I mean, some of it's what they can charge too, but what do you think are the drivers of different kind of stages in, in yeah. the flow of these machines? Let's talk about two different models there. First, let's talk about rental companies. And so have you ever rented a car when you flew somewhere? Yep. Okay. Odds are that you got a car that was one or two years old, typically. It didn't have 100,000 miles on it, right? The same thing happens with equipment rental companies. They buy new and they sell at a fixed period typically, and they put on the resale market. Typically, it would go to a wholesale auction and then a dealer or a broker would buy it and then sell it to the end consumer. We skip that wholesale part for those resellers and we sell it directly to the, the end purchaser. So the rental companies like that because they get higher price realization, but they still get to work with somebody like us that can work at scale. So that's one model. That's their economic model. Buy new, keep for a fixed period of time, sell. And they sell because things become less reliable and new technology comes out. They're in the business of always having uptime. And if there's a chance of having downtime for customers, it becomes very expensive. And so it's just part of the model. They turn over 20% of their fleet every year. Big construction companies, there's kind of two types of equipment. Equipment that gets consumed and one that's maybe like more durable. And I'll explain what I mean by that. If you've seen a scraper before, there's, those are the giant machines that have like a belly and they, they scrape the belly against the dirt and then they drop the dirt somewhere else. They go incredibly fast and they're used for like leveling whole subdivisions. They're the, the best earth moving equipment that we have. Those scrapers are huge. They're like 50 feet long. They're, you know, maybe 50 tons. Their tires are taller than I am and I'm six foot something. People put new engines in those before they get rid of the scraper. And why do they do that? It's because there's so much metal and value in the machine itself outside of just something like the engine. And so if somebody's getting rid of one of those, they're getting rid of either a change in business, a change in economic fortunes, or maybe there's some sort of, you know, substantially new technology they're looking for. And so that's kind of specialty type stuff. And mm -hmm. then on the general stuff for construction companies, it's the same thing. They have an economic model with a depreciation schedule where they keep stuff for a certain amount of time, turn it over once it's been depreciated, get new stuff, care about the uptime, care about the maintenance programs, care about the fleet composition. There's a lot of kind of a lot more science behind it than I thought when we were getting into the industry. Yeah, I can imagine. And you start to learn all sorts of little cycles, right? Like this particular thing, it tends to be three years or whatever. I got to imagine you know more about kind of the, yeah. the ecosystem of, of heavy machinery than most. Yeah, it's been fun. You know, we started going to these conferences three years ago. And if you if you look at a, the adoption curve, on one side, you have Silicon Valley. And on the other side, you have construction. And in between is everybody else. And so we were a little bit of the outsiders to start with. But now that we've been a few different times, you know, it's a lot easier. They trust us. They're talking to us. They want to use our software and our technology to power their businesses and their purchasing decisions. And so it's, it's been fun to walk that kind of technology program with them. So talk to me what it would be like if I'm a, a, a you know, a smaller contractor and I, I know what I want. I certainly know what the, the contract needs. What do they do? Oh man, it's hard. So you might go to Facebook marketplace or Craigslist or any of the classified systems in our space or you and I both live in Austin. If you drive north or south of the city, you'll probably see some yards on the side of the freeway with some heavy equipment. Those all feel like what you would do in the used car world. You would go to a used car lot where a used car dealer would tell you that that car is perfect. 
It's been well-maintained and it's ready to drive. And we've all heard horror stories of those cars that it's ready to fall apart when it gets off the lot. They've just uh, spit shined it a little bit. The same thing is true in this space. So there's a huge number of scams. The, the biggest one is we call it their ready to work scam is that if you Google search or if you search any of these classified sites, ready to work, like almost every single description says ready to work. And we just know that's not the case because we inspect these things all the time. And so it's really a buyer beware market. You're going out there, you're inspecting it yourself, you're, you're kicking the tires. But the problem with that, and, and I'll ask you this, like how often do you buy a car? Yeah, once every five years, maybe. Yeah, so does the, the average contractor might get uh, this type of machinery once every five years. And yet it has an engine and it has tracks that look like the other tracks and the other piece of equipment, but you're not an expert in that individual piece of equipment. And so when I've gone into the kind of watch them inspect equipment that they're going to buy, you know, they kick the tires, they move the joystick, they look for some stuff, but very few are really qualified to do a deep thorough analysis. And so an example of that is what we do. We do an oil analysis. So we pull the fluids from a machine, we send them off to a lab and we figure out if it's like particulate matter, for example, or if the, the fluids are pure, or if they've been compromised somehow. And all those things tell us whether the engine and the systems are operating well. But when you get one of these reports, it's just a bunch of numbers. And so if you're used to interpreting it, great. But if you're not used to interpreting it, there's no way to understand it. And so it's really stacked against the small contractor, owner, operator buying equipment. One of the things that entities like yours have done, and I think you're describing it now, is a couple of things. One of them is provide liquidity, provide the ability for people to find a market faster and people to find yeah. the source what they're looking for. And the other one that also is kind of alongside that is the confidence. I want to talk a little bit about, about both of those. Yeah. We are in the trust business, which is just a euphemism for confidence at the end of the day, right? You trust your decision-making confidence. And we think of that that's everything from the way we represent equipment online. So if you go to our website, you'll see typically dozens or hundreds of photos. You'll see operating videos. So you get the kind of the sights and the sounds. You get oil analysis, maintenance records. We do this thing where we go through an evaluation on all these equipment. So we produce an inspection report. But we summarize our report and we tell you what's right about the machine, but we do something that nobody else does, which is what's wrong about the machine. We call it what needs work. And so you get a sense of, hey, I'm going to get this used piece of equipment. It's not going to be flawless. It never is. But these are the things that I can live with about it. So you can make an informed, educated decision. So I really like that. It seems to engender a lot of trust on our, on our customer side. The other thing that we do that is kind of antithetical to Silicon Valley is that we pick up the phone. Like you call us, we talk to you, we'll answer your questions before, after, during the sale. Like we do kind of the people side of the business because so much of the world is kind of handshakes, especially our world. And so mm -hmm. we're comfortable doing that. In terms of liquidity, like we're not a marketplace. We're very much a dealer. Like you can't go and list your stuff for sale on our website. That's not our business model because it's really hard to keep quality there. And so we work with just a handful of really high quality suppliers and we choose folks on the supply side that have strong, what's called preventative maintenance programs. Mm -hmm. So they do the maintenance, they keep records, they know about the machines. And then it's a lot easier for us to put guarantees and warranties behind those machines because we have those maintenance records and we know their programs. I really like that. And, you know, talk a little bit about how you got to some of what you just said. And specifically, I'm thinking some of the trust building measures. One of them is being available on the phone. 
you know, you say that's not Silicon Valley, but one of the things it sounds like is what good product management, a la Silicon Valley sometimes, gets you to, right? Is listening, understanding your market, understanding the go-to-market and the, the after sale and, and so on that makes somebody want to do business with you and ultimately makes you profitable. Want to talk a little bit about the, the process that got you there? Yeah. If you look at my entire career, it's, it's kind of SaaS type stuff. And certainly there's somebody on the, on the call, but a lot of the purchasing decisions are made through research and evaluation before you even talk to somebody in that world. What we learned, and we, we went through this thorough process as three founders, we had all left our jobs in COVID for various reasons. One of my co-founders had a baby. I was ready to go back to a smaller company after being at a larger one. I had the joy of watching that company grow. My other co-founder was in an international business that had a different business during COVID because you can't travel internationally for quite a while. Mm -hmm. And so we're sitting at home and we literally just cold call customers. If you were selling something on Craigslist or Facebook Marketplace, we would call you and ask you, how's it going? What's been your experience? Did you like this? Why did you do this? Have you thought about that? What's important to you? And we did that so many times, we ended up producing a 125-page doc of lessons learned from those interviews. And then that informed the way that we built the product and the go-to-market and the support and the sales process and everything else. But we weren't antsy in, you know, we weren't antsy in the sense of, oh, we got to start this. We got to launch right away. We were antsy in the sense that we got to learn all about our customers so we can build the right thing for them. Yeah, I love that. And were there moments along the way? I mean, you mentioned that you kind of did the hard work and, and gave yourself time to, to get it right. Were there moments when you're like, oh, wow, this is different. Okay, I, I get it. Or I, I get that we don't get it. Yeah, I mean, everything is just a pain in this space. Like, if you see my face right now, it's grimacing because there's no Kelly Blue Book. So how do you price this stuff? There's no Carfax. So how do you come up with condition reports? There's no title. So how do you ensure that something is free and clear to sell? There's really hard to transport these things because they can weigh up to 200,000 pounds is the heaviest piece of equipment that we have on the website right now. And so none of these things are standardized. So we can't just hit an API to get the shipping quote for something like that. We had to build a bunch of tooling internally to enable the business. And so it was all those things that we discovered. And we discovered some of that through doing, some of that through knowing the space. My two co-founders sold a company, Caterpillar, a few years ago. So they knew some of it coming in. But I think the amount of pain in which we experienced up front was maybe more acute than we thought it was going to be. Isn't that always the story, though? If you knew how bad it would be, the number of things we wouldn't do outweighs the number that we would, for sure. It is, absolutely. And it's been that case in every single business. I think the thing that's different in every single business compared to this one is that in all those other businesses, we just had to build more software. Mm. In this one, there's a substantial operational component. We got to know the right shipper to call to do the thing. And we got to talk to them because they don't have an API and they don't like responding to emails. Isn't that interesting? Your moat winds up being relationships <laughs> and knowing who to call and and all the, all the hard work to, to know the right way to get something done, right? Yeah, and the standard operating procedures around that and the internal knowledge and the fact that we pay our bills promptly and on time so people want to work with us, you know, all that. Magic, magic. Yeah. So, you know, I, I asked the question a moment ago from one perspective. Let's ask it from another. Somebody comes to you with a need. What's their experience like? So, I'm a, again, I'm a smaller contractor and uh, I've got a need, I've got a contract, and I come, you know what I mean? I've got what you yeah. asked for. I, I, I've got the money, I know what I need, and I come to to Boom and Bucket. What's their experience like? 
Yeah, more and more of the space is digitally native. And it's having a generational shift where the tail end of the baby boomers are beginning to retire. And the folks taking it over in their 30s and early 40s, where they've been on their cell phone and their computers most of their life. And so they find and discover and evaluate online and then talk to us at the inflection point. And the inflection point is when they're ready to pay. They usually have a question or two. So they call us, we invoice them, they wire. And that part's, we have a bunch of automation set up for that. And God bless Stripe and companies like that for building cool stuff. But it is mostly digital and human at the inflection point. And so nine times out of 10, they just want to talk to somebody to make sure it's not a scam because they've been burned so many times before. So they find one of our employees, they find Mike on the other side of the phone call. Mike answers a few questions about the equipment, assures them that if they send us $125,000, it's not going to go to Nigeria. It's going to go to our bank account. And we build a little bit of confidence and trust that way. Yeah, it's equivalent of a handshake over a phone or a hug over a phone. And then we communicate with them after they've paid and they know when it's going to arrive because the shipping can be pretty variable. And we've done a bunch of work to automate that. And then the kind of kind of cherry on top of this experience is that when we call them and say, how was your experience? The average customer gives us 9.5 out of 10. They just love it. And so that's what we're looking for. And that's kind of the experience that we want that it's digital in the places that can be digital, but there's a human on the other side, because if you force digitalization on a slow to adopt industry, you'll never get there. You got to meet them in the middle. There's a really important insight in the middle of what you just said. I want to draw out. Yeah. And I'm going to paraphrase it here, but mostly digital until the inflection point. Really interesting. You know, you think about decision-making across the board. And, you know, you're gathering information, you're doing this, you're doing that. Ultimately, the leap is always emotional. People want to think it's not, but it's always emotional. And what you found is that the way to make, to take care of that emotional component where somebody's saying, I can't 100% prove that this is all going to work. Let me hear someone's voice so I can make that leap. Or let me talk to somebody or let me, you know, read the right thing or whatever. But this idea of mostly digital until the inflection point, I think is an incredibly deep insight. Uh, oh, thank you. I don't know. I think I'm not used to getting compliments on that side. And I don't know if it's insight as opposed to just listening to what your customers say. And that's kind of our thing. We have a saying that we want to be slippery mm-hmm. in our company. And being slippery, it's like water flowing down the hill, right? If you try to dam it, it's going to find a way around. So you might as well just go around the rock anyways. So we work really hard at doing that. Yeah, I love that. But I guess, the, you know, the best source of in, in insight is listening to your customers. So I think it, it, it kind of all works. They tell you what they want. It's like, and they don't always use the same words that you use, but if you listen to their emotions and their feels about it and their concerns, there's always gold in those conversations. And it's, again, it sounds like you guys kind of covered it in volume too. So over time, patterns emerge that maybe people can't verbalize, but because they don't want to say that. They don't want to say, you know what, I really need to get on the phone with you so I feel comfortable that you're not lying to me. Yep. But it, it, it takes a little bit. You're like, that's what they're looking for, isn't it? Love that. So from the other side, the supplier side, the people that you're partnering with, I don't know, suppliers, maybe not the right word, the source side, um, what's it like working with you there? We're also digitally native there. Like they're used to having an account where they call for everything. We can do most things digitally. You know, and there's workflows and automations for all the documentation necessary to sell something like this. And so it's not as complex as selling a house, certainly, Mm -hmm. but it is not trivial. And so we make that type of work incredibly easy for them. And then they like the programs that we built from a product perspective. Traditionally in the market, there's kind of bifurcation in the sense that you send it to auction, 
and it's going to go to no reserve auction and you got to ship it there mm -hmm. and you hope and you pray that there's good attendance at that auction and it doesn't rain that day. So, you know, people show up or you put it in a classified channel and you do all the work yourself. We've kind of figured out a sweet spot for them where we do all the work. They don't have to ship it. We optimize price. And if it's not going to sell retail, we move it to an auction. So they have certainty of sale. And so it's kind of a one-stop shop solution for them on that side. And across the board, you're reducing the anxiety of a pretty big thing, right? I mean, none of the vehicles, none of the equipment you're talking about are small transactions. No. And there's all sorts of things that can go wrong and all sorts of, they're so complicated as machines. That's, that's a lot of your, your value add, isn't it? Is, is reducing some of the anxiety so it's just one less thing. Well, yeah. And what's it, how do you get over anxiety? You build trust, but you build trust over time by doing good work on the first one, the second one, the third one. And that first one, the most important thing that we can do is we can bring them along in the journey. And so much of the journey is just understanding the data. It's like selling a house. You got to understand the comps nearby. And so if particularly any of our smaller sellers, sometimes they, they get emotional about what price they want to get for a piece of equipment. And when we bring data and say, hey, here's the recent auction prices, here's the recent retail prices, those conversations happen a lot better and a lot smoother than just like, hey, you've got to trust me on it, right? The trust gets earned, but we can bring data to kind of kick it off. Yeah. And it's, we are definitely at a point where data is making a lot more of a difference than maybe people thought it did. I think that you, even just the last couple of years, I've seen people more and more comfortable with it. It's more a part of the conversation. It's less something you have to convince someone to listen to. You, even in the time that you guys have been around, have you seen that shift or has it always kind of been part of the part of the story? Yeah, people are becoming much more proactive. And in particular, their bosses are asking more data to figure out whether they're doing a good job or not. And we can provide a lot of that says, yeah, on average, we outperform the other channels by this much. And by the way, if you share more of your data, we can help you benchmark your prior and current performance across your other channels. And of course, we love that because we can make uh, an argument more of it should go to us, but we'll help them understand, hey, here's what's working well for you and here's what's not. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So I want to finish with talking about your relationship with uh, AGC. I was really excited to see that yeah. as, as, you know, as an entity who's helping a lot of AGC members, you made that a part of how you understand the, 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 the industry and just got to know people. Talk to me a little bit about how your experience has been with them. I got all the acronym organizations for you, the, equip, the Association of Equipment Management Professionals, yep. the Association of, Association of General Contractors. I'm going to an event in three weeks called Beaver Dilly, which is the underground contractors, the beavers, if you didn't get yep. that. Yep. Dilly's, Beaver Dilly is well known. That's, isn't that the, that's in the, the West Coast? It is. Cool. I love that you know that. Yeah, for it, we, we have to be part of the industry. Like we're not at, we can't be outsiders and hope to get insiders to buy from us. It just doesn't yeah. work that way. And it's all about the trust. Like we show up at these events, we sometimes on stage, we're always in the audience, we're often at a booth, like we often sponsor things. Man, I go, I shake hands. Sometimes I wear the bright red suit and our company colors. Like we're there and we're real people and we show up time and time again and earn the trust. And so, so the Association of General Contractors is one of those. I've been lucky enough to go to their annual uh, event. This last year it was in Vegas. And then I got appointed to their leadership committee too that helps develop the next set of leaders for Association of General Contractors. And so it's been fun to get to know the group and then contribute the best that I can. My, as you might imagine, backgrounds a little bit different than some of the folks in that committee. And so 
I try to contribute where I can and bring a fresh perspective and then learn as much as I can from them as well. It's all about humility. And that's, that's what I, I wanted to ask is I, I really like that you've dove in and really become part of helping and, and giving back really early, which I think is pretty great. There's a, there's a certain irreverence that you have to have for these family businesses that have been around for a hundred years plus. Hmm. It's really cool. And they didn't, they didn't get there by mistake and, you know, the stats of going from the first generation, the second generation, and third generation are infinitesimally small, right? And we all have stories about how a grandfather ran a business or someone like that, but it doesn't last. Yeah. So when you see it last, like there's a lot to be learned from that. And their businesses are so different than the technology-based ones I've run, but there's a lot to learn around, you know, relationships and trust and risk management and risk mitigation. And it's it's very interesting. I really enjoy it. Yeah, I, I do too. And I, I appreciate that. Well, Adam, this has been great. I really love what you guys are doing. So thanks for being on the podcast. Yeah, thank you, Hugh. Appreciate it. 